electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. And welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and it is eerily quiet here on Fed Day. We're just an hour away from the decision on rates, and you can feel the market holding its breath. We're expecting a half-point hike, but will it seal the deal on a recession, or will the Fed send us a dovish surprise? And what will Chair Powell say about the Fed's next moves? Remember, that's at the presser at 2.30 Eastern. Stocks are higher. Dow's up 167 ahead of the decision. Let's get Dom Chu with the setup. Dom. All right. It's pretty quiet as well over here in the markets, but generally positive. So the wait and see that we normally see with kind of hovering around mild gains and losses are actually substantively fractional, if you want to look at it that way. The Dow Industrials are up 165 points, about a half of 1%. That's pretty good for a wait and see kind of day. The S&P 500 now 4,036, up about 17 points. At the highs of the day, we were up 31, so even more so than we are now. At the lows of the day, we were just about down four points. Net-net on balance up about one-half of 1%, similar to the Dow, and similar percentage advance, about one-third of 1% for the Nasdaq Composite, 11,291. So, yes, wait and see, but generally tilting towards the positive side of things. One other place you are seeing positivity is in the oil markets. On the macro big-picture side of things, you have both OPEC, the oil cartel, as well as the International Energy Agency, both offering forecasts for oil demand in 2023 that implies some kind of a demand recovery. For that reason, you're seeing a bit of a bid to oil prices this morning. WTI crude U.S. benchmark prices up $2.28, 3% gain there to $77.67. But of course, we always like to put the one-year chart up there to just show you that in the context of the grander scheme of things, this is still very much a downtrended place right now. We'll see if it stays that way for crude oil prices. And then the, I guess, move that you want to watch right now is what's happening with Bitcoin prices. In the wake of what happened with FTX and its bankruptcy and saying Bankman Freed getting arrested, there has been a steady relief rally, if you want to call it that, for Bitcoin prices. Currently above 18,000, 18,090 the last trade. They're up about nearly 2%. That's $332. If you look at the way things have shaped up, it doesn't seem like a lot. But this is the first time that we've seen Bitcoin back above 18,000 since November 10th. So again, broader moves in context. We've lost about 62% of Bitcoin's value in the last year, but it's up above 18,000. We'll continue to watch and see if that near-term momentum has any legs, Kel. I'll send things back over to you. Pretty resilient, given everything that's happened. Dom, thanks. All right, the big question for next hour is, will Jay Powell lean against the markets? He could do that in one of two ways, either more hawkish than investors are expecting or much more dovish. Steve Leesman is already down at the Fed getting ready, and he's got that story. Hi, Steve. Hey, Kelly. Yeah, the Federal Reserve is expected to announce a 50 basis point interest rate hike within the hour following uh, four straight 75 basis point hikes. But the Fed is going to be reducing the rate of increase while still trying to convince markets that it's going to be higher and remaining at a restrictive rate for some time. Uh, Take a look here, along with sharp declines in the 10-year and the two-year since that better than inflation report yesterday. The expected peak funds rate fell from 499 before the inflation report to 481 right now for the May 23 contract. And there's increasing betting that the Fed could be done as soon as 
March of 2023. The broader question, as you say, if the Fed and Fed Chair Jay Powell are comfortable with this dovish drift in the outlook envisioned in the rates, and and that's loosened financial conditions since the last meeting. Uh, Taking a look at how much they've loosened, the 10-year Treasury down 60 basis points since that uh, November meeting. Junk bonds and 30-year mortgages down 75. The Dow plus 7. Dom Chu just told you a half of that percent is just uh, from today. Average hourly earnings, however, are up 0.6%. So if the Fed didn't intend for financial conditions to loosen and has a problem with market levels, the Fed chair today could attempt to lean against it with hawkish forward guidance. Uh, another problem for Powell, the market sees the Fed hike into 482, but then easing by 50 basis points through the year next year. That's at odds with the Fed that's probably going to update its economic projections today to show the median funds rate at around 5% for 2023, plus or minus, creating a conflict between the Fed and the market's rate outlook. This, there was a lot in there, Steve, and I'm glad that you pointed out about financial conditions easing, but will the easing matter if the curves are still inverted? You know what I'm saying? I think so, but I, I do think the easing matters because um, Powell needs the markets to restrict financial conditions to bring down inflation. At least that's the story he's been telling. All right. Steve Leisman, we will see you soon. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Let's turn to Rick Leisman now. <laughs> Rick Santelli. Sorry, Rick. Rates are on the move ahead <laughs> of the Fed decision. Are you shaking your head? <laughs> he's having a heart attack. Uh, Rick Santelli is out at the CME with more. How's the setup, Rick? You know, if you want to know what the Fed's next move is, I'm not the guy to listen to. If you want to know what the market's next move is, maybe I'm your guy. And if we harken back to early November, we're talking about the same issue. What do you want to predict? What the Fed's going to do or how the market's going to react? I say the market reaction's been pretty darn clear. All these charts are from the last Fed meeting. Look at two-year note yields. Basically, we've gone from a zone of 470 to 420. We've shaved 50 basis points off, and right now we're hovering at three-month low yield closes. And if we look at 10-year, the range, well, we've shaved it from 420-ish to 350, about 70 basis points. And if you look at three months to 10s, the yield curve, okay, a couple days ago, it closed at the most inverted in 21 years. It's only up a couple of basis points from that at minus 83. And it really is telling us that the way the markets are set up, most likely there may be a recession at the end of this. But traders don't trade for 16 months out. A lot of traders don't even trade for 12 weeks out. They trade for basically the here and now and maybe add three to four weeks. And if there's a recession, they'll make adjustments. They're not playing for that. They're playing for the bullish move in Treasury yields. And if we look at what's going on with respect to the dollar index, same thing. Since the last Fed meeting, it's basically gone from a 112 area to now 104 area. These are huge moves. And even though, just like inflation, the dollar may be weak, it's historically high. And finally, the HYG. Nothing tells you how investors are feeling about interest rates or nervousness in the markets of interest rates that an HYG high-yield ETF. And it's been steadily climbing. As a matter of fact, Yesterday, close at a three and a half month high. Kelly, back to you. Rick, what are you most going to be watching? Um, the dots, you know, their, their rate projections. We've obviously got the language from the Fed chair himself that's always, you know, kind of more impactful. Just the market reaction. I mean, what, do you, what is going to be key, do you think? Uh, I'm going to count how many times we see the word longer. We're going to be, you know, higher for longer. Longer is going to be the new term we should key on. But what I'm really going to pay most attention to is if, the chairman gives the market some credit, okay? They've been trying to talk yields up and equities down. They've only had mild success. 
And what do you mean by longer, Rick? Explain that for a second. Well, I think that Steve Leisman's had it right for the last three meetings. The issue, and I think the markets have focused on it, is the Fed's heavy lifting, according to the markets, is done. Inflation and a peak is in the rearview mirror, although it's still much too high. But ultimately, keeping rates at a higher level longer hmm. is most likely going to be something that the Treasury market will be able to live with, along with the equities, depending on earnings. And remember, traders don't trade for 12 to 14 months out. No, they don't. <laughs> Rick, thank you. We appreciate it, Rick Santelli. Now, a half-point hike does look baked in right now, but could yesterday's cooler CPI number impact where the Fed goes after today? Here to discuss, Subhaja Rajapa is head of U.S. rate strategy for Society Generale, and Kim Forrest is the CIO of Boca Capital Partners. It's great to see you both. Kim, I'm struck by the fact, before we kind of dive into inflation and all the rest of it, that it, in quite simple terms is... Is the problem or opportunity right now that for the first time in years, there is an alternative to the U.S. stock market? Some of the yields you can get, um, forget even, you know, in financial markets, in a savings, uh, you know, savings account these days are are pretty good. We're talking about 4%. It's going to go even higher after today's Fed rate hike. So what is the net impact of all of that, do you think? Sure. Well, I think the headline looks really great for interest rates, right? If you're um, somebody that wants to lend money somehow, if that's through a CD or if it's through buying a bond. So no doubt you're getting better rates. But here's the, the flip side of this. Inflation's really high. And if you're looking to grow your money, um, not just get return for some shorter period of time, Bonds generally are not the way to do that. You have to be an owner of stocks to be able to get money over time. And that's just the way it works. So in other words, yes, they're in high in nominal terms, but they're still low in, in real terms. And, and who knows? I mean, but Subhadra, I guess if inflation's cresting, then maybe you pick up those yields while you can and you don't have to worry about the stock market collapsing in the case of a recession. Absolutely. And I think it's also a very good hedge, right? If you're looking towards potentially a meaningful slowdown in the economy or a recession, we could see some volatility in the equity market and risky assets heading into a recession. But bonds are going to be your safe bet. When you you know buy a two-year note or even a, a treasury bill, you're locking in that interest rate for the period of time that you are, are long that bond. So to me, it feels like uh, it's a good time to not just be focused on risky assets, which is what we've done over the last several decades, but also offset some of that with some real returns in, in the bond market. And in, see, if you look at the whole spectrum in, in the bond market, market. Treasuries look attractive in the front end. But beyond that, corporate bonds and other, uh, you know, risky, riskier uh, bonds where the default rates are still very low look quite attractive to us. Kim, what would you say about that? And, and where do you sit when you look at the investing landscape right now? Sure. Well, you know, once an equity analyst, always an equity analyst. So they, <laughs> I'm going to, you know, uh, steal my own thunder there. But um to be sure, you may want to move into bonds, but for goodness sake, stay on the short end of those bonds. Don't buy anything way out in time. Because again, you have got to have these assets not just returning cash to you through dividends and um, uh, yield, but you also have to have it grow. And again, if you're going to play the trading game, you might not come out on top because as rates um, fall, um, no, sorry, as rates rise, uh, you know, the prices fall. Mm -hmm. So do be aware of that.
If you're going to trade. Subhadra, let's just talk about the landscape. What, what are markets telling us right now about the possibility of Fed errors being committed here when they're about to raise the benchmark overnight rate over 4% and basically nothing else in the curve save on the very short end is even yielding that? Um, they are focused on inflation. So raising rates is, is the right way to go to try to curb inflation. The question is where the end point is and what's a good time uh, to look at perhaps going long bonds when the Fed is done. So for our views that the Fed raises rates by 50 basis points today and then delivers at least another 75 basis points of rate hikes next year. So when they get to the terminal Fed funds rate, which might be as early as March or uh, you know May of next year, they're going to keep rates steady for the for, for uh, the remainder of next year until we really start entering into a recession. We have a recession penciled in for early 2024. So you know for a good portion of next year, yields could remain relatively high in the front end. So I see an opportunity in the bond market under these circumstances. Yes, on a on an inflation adjusted basis, right now it doesn't look so attractive. But as we progress through next year, inflation is going to gradually decline and the returns on bonds are going to look even more attractive. What would you like to see them do, Kim, from a practitioner's point of view? You know, you're in the markets, you're looking at these companies, you don't want to see a recession. What would the Fed's best move be here then in order to kind of try to get this one right? Well, I think that they need to go very, very slowly now. I really think the inflation that we're seeing was not caused by anything that the Fed did other than in asset prices, we all know that, but in money supply. And the money supply is dropping precipitously now, and I think they know that. So I think being measured and looking for more data about where inflation is actually going is what I want to see the Fed do it. And oh, by the way, tell us a lot. Yeah. I think um, Powell has been really great about being transparent about what he's doing. And you want to see even more candor about, hey, these are the exact variables we're looking at. Here's the, you know, what they define success as. Yeah, we'll see yep. he, if he tiptoes in that direction. Wouldn't it be nice? Uh, we have a big press conference coming up where he might be able to do that. Kim and Subhadra, thank you. Kim Forrest, Subhadra Rajapa, as we await that big decision in about 45 minutes time. Coming up, Delta Airlines expecting to nearly double next year thanks to robust travel demand. Phil LeBeau will be here on set with what's driving their optimism on earnings. But first, the banks have really underperformed the market just over the past month. Will that worsen after today's Fed decision? We'll debate. And as we head to break, here's a quick check on the market landscape ahead of that call. We have the Dow leading the way with about a two-thirds of 1% gain. S&P's up half a percent. Ten-year yield right on the nose there, right around 3.5%. The exchange is back after this. This is... The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. 
and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back with the Federal Reserve raising rates at the fastest pace in four decades. The financial stocks were supposed to be a major beneficiary, but it hasn't happened. Even as the funds rate is about to crack 4%, both the regional and the bank ETFs are tracking below the S&P, on pace for their worst year since the 2018 taper tantrum. For more on the disconnect and whether now's a good time to get in, let's ask Anton Schutz. He's Menden Capital Advisors, President and CIO. Anton, welcome. Uh, it's good to see you again. And before I, I sort of ask about your recommendations, are there... What were the bright spots in the investing landscape so far this year? Who did benefit from this environment? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, um, you've really had a lot of sectors hurt. Energy was the biggest beneficiary earlier in the year, and they've been hurt a lot of late as the price of oil has come down. So it's really been a tough year for investors, for stock pickers. I think some of the biggest winners have been, you know, the the guys who've been uh, trading large uh, moves, trend followers, there have been some big trends, particularly earlier in the year, and you've had firms like Bridgewater have you know really big swings and returns as well. So it's been a tough year for, for most people. It has. So what about the banks? Why haven't they benefited from higher net interest income, in some cases record highs? Yeah, you, you can't, you know, you can't have your take on any of the, the reasons people have been trying to figure out why banks are, are good. But the one thing that has happened is earnings have actually done quite well for regional banks. Uh, they have benefited from rates being above zero, which is really not a good thing for the banking space. Uh, but people have worried about a recession engineered by the Fed. So they've worried about credit. Now they're worried about the top um, of their interest rate margin cycle. Um, you know, it's, it's just they, they want to keep worrying. But what's happened is a lot of these companies are seven, eight, nine times forward earnings with big dividend yields and lots of capital. And I think I've said this for quite a while, but banks are not part of the problem. You know, it's the lending outside the banking space that's riskier, right? The, the, the cracks in the credit that we've seen out there have been companies that have, you know, targeted subprime consumers, the lower tier. And obviously that's hurt a lot, right? Yeah. The Fed rate increases for a tremendous amount. Inflation is hurt a tremendous amount. Those people are having a harder time paying their bills. Yeah. Um, banks tend, tend not to bank those types of customers. Yeah. Um, you know, the other big fear is commercial real estate. Um, you know, oh my gosh, people have not come back to work. Our lease is going to get canceled. And again, if you really sort of think about the big commercial real estate, you know, it's, it's gone into the pension plans. It's gone into the large life companies. You know, banks typically don't have those very large buildings in major cities uh, other than their short-term basis during construction. So you think, I think, yeah, I was just going to say that valuation-wise, basically it's a good time to get in, broadly speaking. You also like you say the self-help stories. What would a couple examples of those be? Sure. Um, so near Community Bank, uh, it's interesting. I'm talking about the Northeast because you've heard me talk about tax advantage states. Yes. So near Community Bank has just closed a merger, and the company they bought, Flagstar, is actually a large mortgage company. They have uh, quite good uh, commercial lending products. I think the combination of the companies will lead to better deposits, better products. And they'll use a lot of technology to help drive efficiencies in Flagstar. So I think the company will continue to pay its 8% dividend yield, which is a great, great yield of weight. And will also eventually be able to buy back stock. I think earnings estimates are actually too low on this company. I think there's a lot of 
commercial real estate. They lend a lot to multifamily real estate and particularly rent controlled. And so if you think about that rent controlled, I mean, no one's leaving the New York City rent controlled apartment. So before I let you go, am I hearing you sound pretty bullish and upbeat on the prospects of the Northeast, Anton? What is happening? Well, How can this be? How can I'm this being, be? I'm being, I'm being bullish on your community. And actually, Provident Bank, which is in New Jersey primarily, uh, you know, some New York, some, some Pennsylvania, that merger, <laughs> Lakeland, same thing, right? I mean, you're going to get a lot of cost cuts out of it. You've got a really nice dividend yield. You get paid to wait. Uh, and these companies are going to invest in a lot of technology to help them improve their efficiency and be better. So right. uh, very conservative lending structure. So, yes, I am bullish on uh, some states in the Northeast, particularly the banks benefiting all right, Anton, we'll see how this plays out next year uh, with recession risks and all the rest headed our way for now. Thank you very, very much. Anton Schutz with Menden Capital Advisors. Coming up, do wages lag inflation or do they lead to it? That's the question plaguing the Fed and investors right now. We'll try to answer with Jeffrey's chief financial economist ahead. But first, Apple is set to close out its worst year since the Great Recession. And now a new law in the EU is putting some of its profits in peril. We'll look at what's at stake for the world's most valuable company. As we go to break, another look at the Dow heat map. Only three stocks are negative pre-Fed. Uh, and those are Goldman, Verizon and Amgen, while Merck, Microsoft and Home Depot are leading the way. Stay with us. Now is the time to embrace a new wave of workers. Every day, your team grows younger, more digital, and more drawn to entirely new ways of working, which means you need flexible solutions to connect them where business gets done. T-Mobile for Business was born digital. With America's largest 5G network, we can make it easier to work together from virtually anywhere. Your team may be changing, but with the right tech, it can be more productive than ever before. Get started at tmobile.com slash now. Welcome back, everybody. At the highs, we were up 256 points as we head into the Fed decision. Dow is close to those levels right now. The S&P is up half a, half a percent, just a little bit shy of that for the Nasdaq. Now, Apple's worst year since the Great Recession could still get even uglier thanks to some big changes in Europe. Here's the stock. It's up a tenth percent today, down 18 percent year to date. Steve Kovac is here to explain. Yeah, so this is all about the Digital Markets Act or the DMA. That's a law passed in the EU this spring, and it's targeting the power of big tech companies. But let's talk specifically how it's targeting Apple. Now, Apple will, under this law will be required to allow third-party app stores to open up other parts of the phone to third parties as well. Now, a Bloomberg report yesterday says Apple is working on a new version of iOS that complies with the law for when it goes into enforcement, but that's not until 2024. But here's the interesting bit from that report, Kelly. Only the EU will have the third-party app stores. The rest of the world won't. And so we're seeing Apple talk about this. They're fighting about it in the name of privacy and security for the users, and that's all good. But what it talks less about is the app store profits and margins they're trying to protect as well. But it's a good thing this is starting in the EU, at least in Apple's view, because the EU is actually a tiny market for apps. They estimated only $6 billion in sales last year. Compare that to the $29 billion in sales for the App Store in the U.S. and $85 billion globally. So what this tells me is Apple is going to fight this country by country instead of just ripping off the Band-Aid and making these changes globally instead. And it's, they still may be able to find ways to charge these third parties for access to iOS. 
But look, Kelly, it's going to take years for this to fully shake out. And while the EU may ha not have big app store sales, U.S. lawmakers are considering similar legislation here that will have much more impact on Apple's revenue. Do we have any examples of these third-party app stores yet, or we just have to assume that once they're allowed to proliferate, that you could go to something other than literally what's called the app store to right. download? And would that download of, of uh, an app be cheaper because there's not a 30% cut? But even those third parties have to make money somehow, exactly. right? Who so, are they? So, so potentially it could happen that the way you just described. Right now, obviously, there's some third-party app stores on Android. They're small, nothing close to the Google Store, nothing close to the Apple App Store. But what could happen here is gaming is going to be a really big thing, Kelly. This is where most of the money is made. And we, the Fortnite maker Epic Games, which is going through a legal process with Apple right now, they would love to have their own video game store on the iPhone and sell that directly to customers. The real question here is, how does Apple find a way to take a slice of those transactions still, even if Epic offers more, or any other third-party app store, offers more favorable economics to the developer, they still may have to be paying Apple in some form or fashion. It is fascinating that it's so much smaller. It's EU app store revenue. Why is that? Is gaming just not as big in Europe? Or why? What yeah, it's, it's, it's where all the money spent. Android is also way bigger True. in Europe. So a lot of that money goes there. But look, iPhone customers spend the most money. iPhone is the dominant market share here in the U.S. That's why that number is so high. And then the China numbers, which we don't have estimates for right now, but those are big too. So if similar regulation as we're seeing with this uh, Digital Markets Act in the EU, comes to the U.S. and goes into enforcement as well, it's going to be a much bigger impact than what we're going to see in a couple years. Great point. For now, Steve, thanks. Thanks. Our Steve Kovac. Let's get to Frank Holland now for a CNBC News update. Frank? Hey there, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. Peru's new government has declared a national emergency that will last 30 days. The decision follows days of violent protests after the impeachment and the ouster of former President Castillo. Six people have died in clashes with police. Demonstrators are calling for Castillo's immediate release and new national elections. Prosecutors are seeking an initial 18 months of detention for Castillo after he was charged with rebellion and conspiracy. Twitter has suspended an account that tracked the movements of Elon Musk's private plane. Twitter notes unspecified rule violations for the suspension. Twitter's new owner had previously said he would leave the account alone due to his commitment to free speech. Musk has not responded to CNBC requests for comments. Similar must tracking accounts, they remain active, including ones on Instagram and as well as on Telegram. And Pope Francis is calling for a more humble Christmas this year. He's urging people to reduce spending on gifts and donate the savings to help people suffering in Ukraine. That's the very latest. Kelly, back over to yeah, you. Always bringing that up, uh, reminding us not to forget. Frank, thank you very much. Frank Holland. Still ahead, Delta shares are flying high after the airline updated its guidance big time. Big contrast with some of the airline trades we saw yesterday. We've got the news and what it means for air travel in 2023. Plus, Tesla's wild ride. Morgan Stanley making it a top pick as the stock hovers near a 52-week low. And shareholders voice concerns about Musk's focus on Twitter. We have all the latest straight ahead. Welcome back. Shares of Delta are higher today after the company boosted expectations for next year in a presentation to investors. Now they join the likes of United and Alaska Air in seeing sustained spending and travel demand. Philip Bo actually got a chance to speak to Delta's CEO, Ed Bastian. He joins me here on set now. But what's notable about this is what a contrast it draws to yesterday when United and JetBlue shares were way down with different kinds of views. And JetBlue brought everybody down simply because it did not give a guidance that was as rosy as many people were expecting. Well, if you want an expectation-filled guidance report here and you say, yeah, 
Demand is there. Check out what we got today from from Delta. Delta is going to be doing better than expected. At least that's the expectation for the fourth quarter. And then look at next year and the following year. Earnings, more than doubling is the expectation for next year, then topping $7 a share in 2024. When we talked with Ed Bastian, he said it's pretty clear. They continue to see very strong demand, not only domestically, but internationally as well. Large corporate travel, which has lagged small business travel, is continuing to gradually increase. And that'll probably happen even more in 2023. The one constraint, if there is one, is on the supply and the training of pilots. Here's Mr. Bastian. Capacity constraints are real. And listen, we're not holding it. We tried this spring. You saw what happened. Yep. I mean, it broke. I mean, we had, to, we had to dial it back. And so it's still pretty fragile. Uh, pilots are the biggest constraint. The resources, I think that's going to continue to be Ooh. a resource constraint for several years. Remember, they have a tentative agreement in place with the pilots to basically give a 34% raise over the next four years. Keep in mind, I've heard from a lot of people who are like, 34% is ridiculous. They didn't have a contract for the previous four years. That 34%, if you look at it over the course of eight years, is not outrageous. Question is, do they get it finalized by the rank and file? That's a completely separate question. We'll see that play out over the next quarter, two quarters. But as you've said, maybe the last 48 hours illustrates the difference between the outlooks for these airlines, and we yes. can't keep lumping them all together. It's not as simple as just shut down for COVID reopening. I mean, for JetBlue There is a reason why when you read the analyst notes, they will say, here is our pick. And many of them are picking Delta because it's a very well-run company. They've got their ducks in a row. And that's not to say that other airlines are a basket case, but it is to say that the, the analysts are specific when they say, here's why we like this company. And in this case, Delta is the pick for many analysts. We think it's the best run airline right now. All right. So on the management note, let's turn and talk about what's going on over at Tesla. Oh Shareholders are increasingly concerned that Elon Musk is too focused on Twitter. Now, Tesla shares are hovering near a 52-week low. We've talked about the massive valuation reset, Phil, but you see calls on Twitter where there's a lot of Tesla fans and even they are saying, we need a new CEO. We need you know, someone who's going to be a Tim Cook to the Steve Jobs to draw the Apple analogy. We need a PR or an IR department. You know, right. We need all of these mature corporate things to help this company and the shares maybe reflect the reality of where they think they I should be I don't think you're going to get any of those things. Look, Elon Musk created the company. This is how he runs the company. For better or for worse, and for a long time, what gave the oxygen to this stock was either a new product uh, being revealed, a sales report, or Elon Musk himself. Well, he's occupied right now, for the most part, on what's going on with Twitter. And as the stock moves lower here, you have to keep in mind there is a difference between Tesla, the automaker, and Tesla, the momentum-driven stock. Adam Jonas from Morgan yeah. Stanley out today saying we are staying overweight. It's our top pick for 2023 for a variety of reasons. They have more manufacturing capacity Absolutely. than other uh, automakers as they go into EVs. And then also when you look at it, there is this macroeconomic drag on EV stocks. Take a look at what Elon Musk uh, tweeted out last night. Now, this is not going to be the type of tweet that's going to make people say, yeah, I got to go buy my Tesla shares. He said Tesla will be great long term but doesn't control macroeconomic tides, which is true. As the interest rates have gone up, all tech stocks have been under pressure. But look at the EV stocks. Exactly. And by the way, Tesla is the best performing, which isn't saying a whole lot of the EV stocks, though it lags the traditional automakers, whether it's Toyota, 
Volkswagen General Motors. Right, but it does look more cap better capitalized, we could say, in a in a higher yield, lower higher risk environment than than what its competitors have been doing. And obviously, this kerfuffle over whether they did or didn't uh, stop production in Shanghai, there's no one to answer to. No one can get a handle on those estimates. Nor have we ever been able to. And and it comes at a time when the brand question in the U.S. is also being questioned. Do we have any hard data that says Tesla is becoming? you know, less of a status symbol and more of a political statement um, to its no. detriment. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing that says that is the reason why you will see Tesla lose market share. Tesla's going to lose market share because there are going to be more EVs from a broader array of automakers that are available, whether it's GM, Ford, or the upstarts like a Rivian or a Fisker. You just have more choices. So people who in the past would have said, I'll go with Tesla, they are going to go to other automakers as well. But don't confuse that with this being a company that is not well run in terms of EV manufacturing, gross auto margins, and EV capacity. They are still king of the hill. And I know that's not what people want to hear when they see the stock going lower. But remember, the stock is driven on so many things yeah. separate from the fundamentals you know, of Tesla. And what you just said is why the bulls are losing their minds, because they think now it's being held back. Instead of having the Elon Musk halo effect, it's now kind of running in reverse. Right. All right, Phil, thank you. Good to Good see to be you. Here. Phil Abel. Still ahead, inflation has cooled over the past few months as the Fed rate hikes begin to do their job. But one economist argues there's a very real inflationary threat still looming on the horizon. What it is and the potential impact on Powell's messaging, that's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're 20 minutes away from the Fed's rate decision. And while a half-point hike to over 4% is widely expected today, what happens next is a little murkier. My next guest says the Fed will have to keep hiking next year because there's a very real inflationary threat looming that isn't getting enough attention. Joining us now is Aneta Markowska, the chief financial economist at Jefferies. Aneta, it's great to see you, and you see wages going up. Is that right? That's right. So, you know, I think uh, the message from Powell today is going to be that, look, we're, we're certainly, you know, winning the inflation battle on several fronts. We're winning on the supply chain front, commodity front, housing not quite yet, but we can point to something, you know, that suggests in the future housing will slow. But there is that last remaining piece of inflation, which is services ex housing. And Powell reminded us last week that that's 50% of the core PCE basket. And that's very closely tied to the labor market and to wages. And thus far, we haven't seen any improvement on that front. If anything, wages seem to be moving in the wrong direction again. And <laughs> when you say wrong direction, everyone else goes, well, what's wrong? If I'm, you know, we're talking about five, six, seven, eight percent, you know, wage gains in some cases. And is the argument, Aneta, that that is ultimately going to push inflation higher? And if so, when? So it doesn't necessarily push it higher, but it sort of embeds that last, say, three and a half, four percentage points of inflation and makes it very, very difficult to break through that barrier. So I'm fully on board with the idea that inflation will slow to about 4%. I'm skeptical that without sort of breaking labor demand and reducing it substantially, that we'll be able to break that 4% inflation floor. So at some point as it plateaus, um, I think it might become clear that, you know, that again, the labor market is sort of creating that floor. And and speaking of wages, you know, obviously we've seen uh, some increases last month, plus upward revisions. Um, those 
wage increases were corroborated by some other data sources, the Atlanta Wage Tracker. If you look at the New York Fed's expectations of household income, um, they actually accelerated sharply in the last two months to new cycle highs, and that's partly driven by you know, the coming Social Security call adjustments, but there's some upward drift in wage expectations uh, as well. And I think as we get into January, uh, which is typically when companies make those year-end comp adjustments and cost of living adjustments, uh, there's a very good chance that we see further upward pressure on wages. And it's fascinating the way that the COLA is now kind of the new wage price spiral that we might have seen, you know, from organized labor back in the 70s. Putting all that to the side, though, and looking at the wage piece, is it possible that the Fed goes, you know what, we'll take 4% CPI and we'll take 6% wages because that sounds better than, you know, hitting our 2% target and triggering a recession as a result? Uh, you know, I could see some on the FOMC arguing that. I doubt Powell will be on board with that because obviously he's worried about his legacy. And we know, you know, we've seen this movie before. We know how it ended when the Fed sort of, you know, was willingly tolerating higher inflation. And if the market sniffs this out, right, that the Fed sort of implicitly says we're okay with three or four percent inflation, then we have to reprice break evens. And that means that we could de anchor the long end of the Treasury curve. So I just don't think that's a risk worth taking. It certainly wouldn't um, be productive in any way. I think it could actually be counterproductive to their objectives. And if that's the case, then right now you think the market, what do you, what do you think the market is saying that we are going to go back down at two percent? Because I'm seeing forecasts now of two, three percent inflation numbers um, in the back half of next year. Is that doable? I think it's difficult. I think, you know, a lot of folks still in the market sort of view this inflationary episode as a, as a supply shock that just took a little bit longer to resolve than initially expected. And certainly if you believe in the supply side sort of, you know, drivers of this shock, then, then it, you know, then makes sense to conclude that inflation will normalize. I think demand played a very significant role. It's clearly still well above pre-pandemic levels in goods and services and, and even in the labor market. And so it's just hard to envision uh, kind of how we restore the, 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 the demand supply balance in the labor market in particular without actually putting some downward pressure on demand. And again, haven't, haven't seen uh, much signs of that yet. So if you're right, are we going from hiking over 4% today to having to go to over 5% still, which is more hawkish than what the market is expecting? And what's the impact going to be on stocks, on bonds, if you're right from that? So I don't necessarily think we need to go way above five. I think it's a question of how long we stay there. And I think that's what Powell needs to or will probably push against today, this idea that, you know, as soon as inflation peaks and starts to come down, uh, they can start cutting rates. Um, and certainly, you know, middle of next year, I think the, un the employment market will still be very, very tight. And if inflation is, you know, three and a half, four percent, I just don't see how they can justify cutting rates. In fact, uh, my view is that we probably so won't see cuts until unemployment gets closer to 5%, which is what I think many of the Fed believe is the current Nehru. Wow. Annetta, great to have you, especially uh, in a moment like this. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Annetta Markowska with Jeffries. And coming up, home equity is still sitting at record levels. And a new report predicts owners will be putting it to work next year as rates climb. The impact on consumer spending and the latest mortgage demand data are next. As we head to break, don't want to call it, but, you know, markets look like they're getting their hopes up a little bit about this Fed meeting. Dow drifting to session highs up 265, pretty much up eight tenths of a percent across the board. Will these hopes be validated or destroyed? Stay tuned in 14 minutes. We'll be back in two.
Welcome back. Got to check in on the housing market where we see mortgage applications back on the rise after four straight weeks of declines, but demand still way off from this time last year. Let's get to Diane Olick with the numbers. Diana? Well, Kelly, it took a while for them to really react to those lower rates, but after a month of declines, mortgage application volume finally rose last week thanks to those lower rates. The average rate on the 30-year fix for conforming loans did increase ever so slightly last week to 6.42% from 6.41 on the MBA survey, but the trajectory for rates has been lower for the past month as government reports showed inflation was cooling and interest rates dropped sharply yesterday after the CPI release. So as a result, applications to refund finance a home loan rose 3% last week from the previous week. Of course, they're still down 85% from the same week one year ago. Still not a ton of people who can benefit given the record low rates we saw during the first two years of the pandemic. Now, mortgage applications to buy a home rose 4% for the week, but were 38% lower than the same week one year ago. That annual comparison, though, is now shrinking slightly as rates drop. Lower rates have shrunk demand for adjustable rate mortgages. Arms dropped to 7.7% of total applications last week from just under 13% in October. And we could actually see growth in another type of home loan, home equity loans and lines of credit. TransUnion is forecasting that home equity originations will increase by 24% in 2023 from this year as homeowners tap into about 19 trillion dollars in collective home equity, Kelly. Which makes sense and could prolong consumer spending, but does it increase the fragility if all of a sudden home prices start to wobble and decline? Yeah, well, if home prices start to weaken a little bit, it could. But remember, what they're trading this home equity for is actually lowering their rates on other debts. So that's what we're asking. Why are they using the home equity? It's not to renovate their homes so much but really more to consolidate their other debt and pay it off that debt that has higher interest rates now. Now, that sounds financially savvy, uh, yes, let's it call does. it. Diana, thank you. Diana Olick. Sure. Everybody, we are less than 10 minutes from the Fed's rate decision, and Power Lunch picks up our coverage after this quick break. The Dow's up 231. Stay with us. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.